Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 17th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Nineteen forty-four yeah. is where we find ourselves this week. It's our last full decade that we have not done yet. Yes, our first visit to the forties. How exciting! So we find ourselves deep in the heart of World War II. Is that affecting world events and or film in any way? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, yes. So we should talk about the events of the year. People will not be surprised to hear that they are almost exclusively World War II related. Right. It was kind of. The big thing happening. But we're getting towards the end of World War II, and, and we really see that we're starting to turn the tide. So mm-hmm. D-Day is this year, the landings at Normandy. We also have the Battle of the Bulge beginning by the end of this year. There's a ton of stuff happening in the Pacific, most Truly. of it unpleasant, unsurprisingly. Yeah. And then we start to liberate lots of cities this year. So the liberation of Paris is this year, but also you have tons and tons of major cities across Europe being taken back by allied forces. So that's good. Things are moving in the right direction. They are. Even though tons and tons and tons of people are dying. The war is still on, but, you know, we are getting towards the end. And in light of that as well, this year we also have the Dumbarton Oaks Conference, which opens in Washington, D.C. That's when the U.S., British, Chinese, French, and Soviet representatives all met to plan the foundation of the United Nations. That's kind of relevant to one of the films we're going to talk about this year. Exciting times, yeah. Yeah. And in U.S. political news, FDR was reelected for a record fourth and final time. Pretty wild, because quickly after that we were like, People probably shouldn't be president four times. And then we made it too. Yeah, I guess we feel good about that. <laughs> yeah, we feel all right about it. Although, you know, FDR was good. I wouldn't want him to go away. No. Back overseas in France, Le Monde, which is sort of like the French New York Times. The paper of note yes. of France. Was published for the first time this year. That's fascinating to me. I didn't know that prior to us. It, it seems to have begun pretty much right after the liberation of Paris. They were like, we got our city back, and now here's our paper. How exciting. (laughs) Yes. In exciting non-war or political news, Smokey the Bear comes from this year. Only you can prevent prevent forest forest fires. fires. Still around. Uh Please stop setting forest fires, especially out west, people. Yeah, that would be helpful. And then, (laughs) other than Smokey the Bear, and I guess... Le Mans. Really, the only non-political World War II-related info we have is about two serial killers, mass killers. <laughs> but well, one of them is not a. Uh, well, one of them is both not really a killer and also potentially not real. Yes, the first is never heard of this guy before, but great title: The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, which I think is a town in <laughs> Illinois. This yeah. was a series of potentially gas attacks on people in their homes or also potentially just a mass hysteria. Unclear right. of the mad gas. Could it be a mass hysteria that started with some some gas leaks that were not necessarily yes. caused by anyone. By a mad gasser. Know? A mad gasser, if you will. But yeah, people found out that there was supposedly this mad gasser targeting people in their homes and people were having all these strange symptoms in their homes. And then it just took off like wildfire Mm -hmm. and everyone in town was suddenly experiencing gas attacks. 
We also want to mention, but not get into detail, this guy, Marcel Petio, who we saw and on Wikipedia just mentioned he's a serial killer. And we we're like, oh, not as cool as the Mad Gas or Mattoon. But then we went to yeah. his page. He lived a whole life, you guys. <laughs> yeah, this guy is fascinating. He's not your traditional serial killer. He mostly was killing people for money, but he also had one of the wilder life stories I've ever read. So we couldn't possibly do it justice. Look the man up. Marcel Petio. P-E-T-I-O-T. What a life. So yeah, that's the world. World War II. Couple of killers. Smokey the Bear. (laughs) Yeah, in good news, Smokey the Bear. So let's get into what these nominees are. So as always, we'll go in alphabetical order. The first is Double Indemnity, a noir where a woman convinces an insurance agent to help her kill her husband. It stars Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. It was directed by Billy Wilder, written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. It was nominated for seven, and it won zero. Next, we have Gaslight, a psychological thriller about a man who drives his wife to madness so he can finish a crime he started decades before. It stars Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, and Joseph Cotton, directed by George Cukor, written by John Van Druten, Walter Reich, and John L. Balderston. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it won two, Best Actress for Ingrid Bergman and Best Art Direction, Black and White. Next is Going My Way, a dramedy about a priest who improves the lives of everyone he meets. It stars Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald. It was directed by Leo McCary. It was written by Frank Butler and Frank Cavett. It was nominated for 10 and it won 7. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Bing Crosby. Best Supporting Actor, Barry Fitzgerald. Best Writing Screenplay, Best Original Motion Picture Story, and Best music song (laughs) best music song next we have since you went away a drama about people on the u.s home front of world war ii centered around a family of three women it stars claudette colbert jennifer jones joseph cotton again and shirley temple directed by john cromwell written by david o selznick it was nominated for nine academy awards and it won one best music scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture and then last is wilson a biopic of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. It stars Alexander Knox, directed by Henry King, written by Lamar Trotty. It was nominated for 10 and it won five. Best Art Direction, Interior Decoration, Color. Best Cinematography, Color. Best Film Editing, Best Sound Recording. Best Writing, Original Screenplay. Okay, so let's get into the highest grossing movies so we can get a sense of if these nominees line up. The highest grossing movies were, one, Going My Way, two, Meet Me in St. Louis, three, Since You Went Away, four, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, and five, The White Cliffs of Dover. So two of our nominees. Yeah. Did anything particularly notable happen this year? Any kind of innovations? Any Oscars news? Yes, not so much in film, but in Oscars news. So this was the first year there were only five Best Picture nominees. So our classic five that we always think of, even though we've moved away from that again in recent years. 1944 is when it started. The beginning of a long era, which is honestly quite helpful for us. The five picture years are much easier for this podcast. It's true. Although we say that like we didn't do a 16 film year of our own volition. To be fair, we did do that to ourselves. As we already said, what won this year was Going My Way. What was the consensus at the time? Any particularly interesting anecdotal (laughs) news about this? 
So, you know, as we said, it won a good number of its nominations. It was the highest grossing movie of the year. So I think people liked it. But one person did not like it. (laughs) And that person was Billy Wilder, who you might have noticed directed and wrote Double Indemnity, another picture nominated this year. They came from the same studio. And even though nowadays the Academy Awards are not particularly known for being, you know, unmanipulatable. Back in the day, they were highly manipulated. And generally, the studios would pick what they're like, if you had multiple movies, you'd be like, this is the one that's going to win Mm -hmm. and not this other one. And so they had picked Going My Way that year, which became clear to Billy Wilder over the course of the ceremony. I guess he showed up expecting to win some awards. And then as the evening wore on and Going My Way, won every award that it was nominated for. He got more and more frustrated. And then when when it won Best Director, Leo McCary was going up to accept his award and Billy Wilder, who was sitting on the aisle, tripped him. <laughs> he stuck his foot out into the aisle and tripped Leo McCary. And later, he didn't lie about this. No. He absolutely said this is what happened. He later was recounting the events and he said, Mr. McCary stumbled perceptibly. <laughs> Our notes have him quoted with that and then he gleefully recalled. So he was happy yeah. about it. Oh, he was happy about it. After the ceremony, while he and his wife Judith were waiting for his limousine to arrive, he yelled so loudly that everyone could hear him. What the hell does an Academy Award mean, for God's sake? After all, Louise Rayner won it two times. Louise Rayner! <laughs> so, you know, not everyone was psyched about going my way, getting the wins. <laughs> what would you say is the historical consensus now? I mean, I think this film has been largely forgotten, as you said. Only one of these films on like the AFI Top 100 list, which is really the only mm-hmm. piece of evidence I was able to find, is Double Indemnity. It's at number 29, which is pretty good. So That is pretty good, yeah. So I get who got the last <laughs> laugh? Billy Wilder. Guess so. Okay. So all that said, are, are you mad about it, having one? Yes. You? Yeah, same. Okay, great. <laughs> totally mad. <laughs> <laughs> I was not a big fan of this movie, but we'll talk about about the the (laughs) other nominees and if we would have been mad about them. So Double Indemnity, would you have been mad? Well, I'm sure much to Billy Wilder's happiness, I would say, no, I would not have been mad had Double Indemnity (laughs) won Best Picture. (laughs) I I agree with you. I would have been okay with it. But I'm always Team Billy Wilder. He's my boy. How about Gaslight? No, I wouldn't have been mad if Gaslight won either. Me neither. And I can't wait to talk about it because what an impact that movie has had on society today. Truly. How's about Since You Went Away? Yes, I would have been mad. I think I'm going to go with no on that one. Okay. And then Wilson. Yes. Yeah, me too. God, that movie was boring. Okay. Okay. So some quick thoughts about our double yeses, which I guess we just have two of them. Do we want to start with the winner? Feels unconventional. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Yeah, why not? Okay, let's talk about Going My Way. (laughs) All right. So Going My Way is, as we said, a story of a priest who comes into town and makes everyone's life better. There's a parish that's falling apart. There's a church. They're mortgaged. They're going to lose the church. And so Bing Crosby comes in at the behest of the bishop who wants him to fix everything, but he doesn't want to tell the priest who runs the church that's that's what's happened. So he shows up as like, I'm your new assistant. Well, it's not just him. I think the bishop and he agree that yes. they're going to 
play it that Be way. gentle. Because it's a very well-respected older priest who runs the place, and they like him. They don't want to embarrass him. Sure. And so he comes in. He's maybe a little unconventional. He's much younger. He plays golf. <laughs> That's how you know he's a hip, young, cool priest. Yeah, and he sort of is just gentle with everyone. He's a songwriter. He maybe could have gone down the path of being a singer and a and a songwriter, but instead obviously went into the priesthood. He ends up selling a song with the help of an old friend who's a famous opera singer. At the same time, there are boys who are out of control on the streets, and he's able to help bring them into the church by setting up a boys' choir. And yeah, there's other just little events throughout the film Mm -hmm. of him running into people and not being too harsh with them and things (laughs) turning out. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens. Boy, oh boy, what a film this was. I don't really know where to start. It was such a strange narrative and then (laughs) there were all kinds of little song breaks of course because this movie when you look at it on wikipedia is described as like a musical comedy drama film Mm -hmm. that was so misleading (laughs) no it's not a musical in the way that west side story is musical where people break out into song and that's part of the narrative they're just songs throughout it I'll tell you something that struck me about this movie. Maybe this is a place to start. Or maybe this isn't helpful because I took almost no notes about this film. It sort of is both the plots of Sister Act and Sister Act 2. I was thinking about Sister Act 2. I wrote down interesting Sister Act similarities in my notes. Because the first Sister Act is about them saving the church, which is what happens Mm -hmm. in this movie. And then the second Sister Act, right, is about these kids who need direction and then they form a choir. Yeah, but I think what Sister Act does successfully that this is be entertaining. Well, yes, I mean, I haven't seen a ton of Bing Crosby. I would say as a modern viewer, he's no Whoopi Goldberg. It's a bit of an odd <laughs> comparison. The best thing you could ever say about Bing Crosby, but. A, right, Sister Act, especially the first one, has like a ticking clock and a bit of a a motivating thing with this crime plot that's undergirding it. But also, I think Whoopi Goldberg is a more successful character if you're not religious, because you get to go on a journey with her where she doesn't want to be in this convent. She's not religious. If you're not already like Catholic and believe in the goodness of the church, you need an in character. And then we get to see her grow and change. And she has an arc that we're following, which is pretty Yeah, he has no arc in this movie. But it very much is like for if you're already religious. This isn't a movie that's going to bring in non-religious viewers. I wrote in my notes, finally, a movie about how priests and cops are the best people. Yeah. They're all just so great. I'll say the titular song, Going My Way, the one that he writes and tries to sell, but is unsuccessful at selling, I hated the song, so that was an issue for me. <laughs> sure. Because he sings it multiple times, and they're all like, this is so good. And then they play it for these music executive people who are like, this is not for us. <laughs> and not I was like, I'm failable. with you. Yeah, this song is no good. And then he ends up, just for fun, singing this song about a mule or something with the boys choir and then that's the one that they sell yeah it was just like a lot of unrelated events all strung in a row is how i felt about this movie yeah he wasn't as active really as i would have liked him to be well it's also weird because he's kind of saving the church because he's bringing in all of these new parishioners or whatever and then he saves it by selling the song and having the money to pay off the mortgage but then all of a sudden at the end of the movie the church burns down Mm mm-hmm And then they have to save it again. (laughs) The arc is just so muddled. Yeah. But I guess it was inoffensive and fine. 
Yeah, my main note was this movie is pleasant, but really boring. It was really boring. That was a main problem. There was also just like some weirdness in it. Unexplained weirdness. Like the the little gang of boys that he brings in has a leader, of course, as all gangs of boys do, who's the one that is convincing them all to stay in line and come join this church choir. And then there's a scene where one of his friends leaves because he doesn't want to join. And then the leader kid is just like slapping the shit out of him (laughs) to convince him to come back. I was like, what is this scene? Why is he slapping his friend so much? He was slapping him a lot. (laughs) And then there's a subplot with this girl who wants to be a singer and has run away from home. Yeah. And Bing Crosby sort of takes her under his wing. And then she ends up having a romance with the son of the banker who's mortgaging the church. And he leaves the bank because he realizes that being a banker is bad and joins the military. Mm-hmm. There was a weird tone to me about all of the stuff that happened with the two of them where Bing Crosby goes over to see her and they're sort of like living together, kind of. Like there's yeah. just this weird thing going on and he's like, what's going on with the two of you? But they're just sort of together. It was like weird for 1944. And then his dad ends up showing up and they are, they're living together, living together. And you're like, are they living in sin (laughs) like what's going on and it's a twist that they've gotten married it was just i don't know you want there to be a clear connection between bing crosby's actions and like their turns to be more virtuous people but it was kind of right vague what he did it was just kind of nice to her and then things worked out yeah he sang a song with her and he gave her a couple of notes about how to be a better singer and then he gave her ten dollars and then her life was better and she was a good person Yeah. I guess I don't want to talk too long about this one because I don't have a lot of strong thoughts. It was just kind of fine. I don't think this holds up. I I guess, right, again, we're deep in World War II. People are like, I just want to watch something pleasant. And this it's pleasant. Sure. That's the best we can say about it. Yes. (laughs) Let's let's move along to our other double yes. Wilson. So Wilson, we said, is a biopic. It's not his entire life. It starts when he's the president of Princeton in 1909 and then pretty much just tracks his political career. So he's Mm -hmm. the president of Princeton. He gets asked by the political machine in New Jersey to run for governor. He does that. He repudiates the machine. He then runs for president. And then we track the course of his presidency through when he has a stroke and then his death. So that's the high level overview. I will tell you, I have a ton to say about this movie. I said yes, because the movie is flawed in a number of ways. But I have to tell you, I was fascinated by this movie as like a historical artifact for like a couple of different reasons. But how did you feel about Wilson? As a movie, I think it is a failure. (laughs) (laughs) I did not enjoy it. I think the writing is so lame because all of the conversations these people are having with each other are not anything anyone would ever say. They're trying to lay out Wilson's political ideology, I guess, through the course of their dialogue. But then everything ends up sounding like Wilson doesn't want to run for governor. And his daughter's like, but daddy, you believe in democratic equality for all. It's just like, it's (laughs) insane. (laughs) I could not understand the way that they had chosen to write it. And then it's just, it's so long and it's biopicky and it's just stuff happening after more stuff. And you're like, Mm mm-hmm. No thanks for this. I can absolutely see why you find it fascinating, though, and I'm ready to talk about that. Yeah, I agree with all that. Very biopicy. We'll get into how it's also problematic in its representation of Wilson as like a human being. But yeah, I think from a meta perspective, it's really interesting. Both 
as a piece of World War II propaganda, mm-hmm. but also thinking through like how Wilson was perceived at the time. And I just think he's an interesting historical figure. So we talked a little bit before, and I know you were dreading watching this movie to begin with, but I was like, at least Wilson had a really interesting presidency. And he did. Again, we'll talk about how this film does not touch on the more problematic things of Wilson, but his influence on Princeton as an institution is really pretty profound. And then his election is really interesting. The election of 1912 is fascinating, although they don't really cover that as in depth. And then again, his presidency is really interesting. And he's got this fascinating dichotomy between, in some ways, being a really progressive guy, right? They mention in part all the labor legislation he passed. That's really uh, important. He was the first president of Princeton to appoint Jewish and Catholic faculty, although there's some questions about the Jewish faculty that he appointed, whether or not they knew he was Jewish. But he was also the first president to appoint a Jewish Supreme Court justice. And so there's progressive elements there. And then this movie is just about World War II and Zanuck's idea that like- World War One. No, no, no. I think it's about World War II. Oh, oh you're saying the, the reason they made the movie and the statement yes. for the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Right? Because we're making a movie deep into World War II about the previous wartime president. Our enemy mm-hmm. is the same enemy. And I think you could reasonably believe, which I think was Zanuck's perspective, that if the world had listened to Wilson coming out of World War I, World War II could be avoided, both in terms of yeah. the League of Nations, right? which the U.S. didn't end up signing on to because Congress was like, no, we don't want to do that. But also in how harsh the Treaty of Versailles was to Germany. And I think that is still conventional wisdom, that if they hadn't been as punitive to the Germans, it's a possibility that democracy would have succeeded. It just was they were economically crushed. So I think Mm -hmm. that's the statement. And then there are bits and pieces of dialogue in here that are just clearly about the current war. There's a thing that happened where Germany was trying to get Mexico to help them out, and they caught the ambassador. And Wilson ends up saying to the German ambassador, won't you Germans ever be civilized? Won't you ever learn to keep your word or to regard other peoples as men, women, and children of flesh and blood and not as inferiors Mm -hmm. to be treated as you see fit, all in the name of your discredited German culture and racist superiority. Like that's a statement about World War II. Yeah. And then again, right, it's really ironic, though, also to use Wilson as an avatar for this dialogue. Not if you believe that he is a superhero great guy who only had amazing opinions about stuff. That's true. (laughs) So all that's going on, right? And I'm like, Uh this is very interesting. Do you want to talk about Wilson's flaws that aren't covered? Uh, Yeah, let's do that. It should be done. So Wilson is the first Southerner elected to the presidency post-Reconstruction. He's born in Virginia, but his family moved to Georgia when he was two. I think he was born in like 1856. So he was born, basically the Civil War is happening. He grows up under Reconstruction. And when he's elected, there's a lot of hope because he is such a progressive in terms of, again, his views on labor that... Mm-hmm. He'll be good. Views on labor don't always translate to views on race. They really don't. So there's an open letter from W.B. Dubois that you can find where he voted for Wilson and wrote this letter being like, I'm hopeful that, you know, you will be able to, to really move us along. And then unfortunately, he was really disappointed <laughs> because Woodrow Wilson was a white supremacist. And so, like, mm-hmm. obviously, that's a problem. But... <laughs> <laughs> 
in his role as president of Princeton, and Princeton has now gone through this process of stripping his name off of everything, he didn't actually mm-hmm. do anything because it's not like Princeton was allowing black people to attend before Wilson. So there was no correct actual change there. But I think the worst thing that he actually did was he segregated the federal government after it had not been segregated. He also famously screened Birth of a Nation at the, at the White House. Yep. Which, you know, is a, a lost cause pro-KKK film. But the the segregation of the federal workforce was the thing that he actually did. And so not only does that hurt the Black people who are working in D.C., middle classes being built up, but it set a norm, right, for the South that was also entrenching segregation. That The federal government was like, yeah, this is great. We agree. 100% endorsed. I think it's also interesting, which I never put together before, that the person who desegregated the federal government and the U.S. military, Harry Truman, was the next Southern-born president. That After is Wilson. interesting. Yeah. Who, Truman had white supremacist ideas as a young man, which again, he grew up in Missouri, which I know some people say is the Midwest, but it was a slave state. But like he grew out of it, <laughs> which you want to see happen. Isn't that crazy? It's understandable that if you're born into the soup that is the Civil War and Reconstruction, you might not yeah. come out of that with like... With the most enlightened views. Yes. But <laughs> if you're, you know, are an intelligent person and a person of the world, theoretically, you have every opportunity... To grow out of your prejudices. To change your mind. Wilson did not. And that's really the great flaw. I did think the things around race in this movie, and I don't know if I'm like giving Xanax credit, were oddly ambiguous in some ways. (laughs) Tell me more about that. One of the worst things that happens in terms of race is when they move into the White House. A black man servant is like, I'm so glad you're here. People from back home hated that. That was bad. Oh my god, it was horrible. It was one of you've all seen this scene before. Some black servant guy comes up to them and is like, "I'm so glad you're here. My mother used to work for your mother, and so it's so nice to have all these like good people oh, around oh, from the south." And you're like, "It's gross." Vomit. Yeah. So then as they're exploring the White House, they come into a room where I think it's the Lincoln bedroom, right? And they read the plaque mm-hmm. from Lincoln. And his wife is the one who reads it and his daughters are all excited, but he's stone-faced. And I'm like, "Okay, interesting." What does this mean? What does this mean? I don't know. There's also a scene before that, which was really shocking, where he goes to a minstrel show. Oh, yeah. I wrote in my notes, blackface jump scare. (laughs) Yeah. But I was doing the most entry-level research. And apparently by the 1940s, blackface had already started to fall out of popularity. Like towards the end of the 30s, its perception as a racially insensitive art form was growing. And so I'm like, okay, you put this in here on purpose, Zana. What are you saying if everyone is now like, ooh, you shouldn't shouldn't do that? So like, what are you telling us about Wilson and why choose to put this scene in the film? So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you are certainly giving him some credit with that question because I think Zanuck is making this movie because he's a huge Wilson fan so it's hard to say if he's trying to put that forward as a like I don't know there is also this to think about (laughs) it's hard to say I don't know again I did the most service level research about what the perception of blackface was in 1944 sure and then there's a scene towards the end I think it's after he confronts that German ambassador and gives that speech about like you Germans are out of control with your racism where he looks to a portrait of George Washington He looks to a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. And then the Battle Hymn of the Republic starts to play, which is, you know, (laughs) the the Union fight song about crushing the Southerners and how slavery is immoral. And I'm like, is this like an accident? Is this sloppy? Is Xanax just not putting this together? Like, what's happening? What's happening? (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) 
I don't know what he's trying to do there. These are my questions. So yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I read it. Uh, I was reading a scholarly article, which I don't have written down in front of me, that was making the argument that this movie mm-hmm. helped drum up support for the UN and like played a role in promoting internationalism. I could see that. There are so many readings of it. I found it fascinating. I think for me, this is one of the most fascinating films we've ever watched, but it has very little to do with the actual content and structure of the film. The content and structure of it is bad. I will say that. As a historical document, sure, there's interesting stuff going on here. As a movie, I don't recommend. I would, yeah, I would only recommend this movie to people who are interested in U.S. history and presidential history and already have a beyond basic grasp of Wilson as a president. Because I think it's it obviously leaves out some critical elements, again, of him as a person and him as a president. And I would hate for people to walk away from this movie being like, wow, that was an accurate representation. Okay, (laughs) But I think if like, again, you have knowledge of Wilson, it's it's really it's really interesting. So that's Wilson. Mm -hmm. So now we should talk about our one. Yes. No. Split decision. Uh-huh. Since You Went Away. All right. The plot of Since You Went Away is the wars happening, obviously. Mm-hmm. So the very beginning of it is this woman's husband has gone off to war and he, they're older. He's not like a new recruit. He's an officer and she's sad about it, understandably. Sure. And she has these two daughters at home and they're having some financial struggle because the army doesn't pay you as much as he's like an advertising executive Mm -hmm. as his old job. So they're trying to figure out how to maintain their household. They end up bringing in a boarder who is a retired military guy who also happens to be in town. There's a little bit of confusion to me about why so many people are moving through their town. I think there is like a base. There There must be a base nearby. Or it's like a launching site. Yeah. Because the town is sort of full of soldiers as well. So we have this older guy living with them. He has a grandson who he is estranged with, who enters the picture and is also interacting with the kids. And then it's sort of an interesting act structure because there's this early act where Joseph Cotton rolls into town. Mm -hmm. He's like a friend of the family who was the best man for the husband who has gone away at their wedding he's super close with the family he has this friendly flirty relationship with the mother uh, and he rolls through town and just hangs out with them for a while and then he is sort of like matchmaking the daughter with the boy and doing this sort of stuff and then he ends up heading off to war and he's gone for a while and then we have a second part of the movie that is mostly about the romance between the border's grandson and the older daughter of the family and the two of them fall in love with each other and then he of course also has to go off to war so he goes off to the war and they have this tearful goodbye and they decide they're going to get married when he comes back and then of course he dies in the war yeah as happens and then the sort of button on it is the husband has gone missing in action Mm -hmm. so everyone's very on edge about it and then at the very end the mother gets news that they've found the father and he will be coming home safely and it's going to be a happy Christmas for everyone. And that's the end of it. Except for the daughter whose love still dies. Well, except for her, who her fiance died, but she's young and she'll get over She'll it, bounce back. And it, it will it also, it's been this great bonding moment for her and the grandfather because he has come to realize that he should have been closer to the grandson all along because he, you know, is proud of him. They have this running thing where it's a military family. The grandson was always supposed to go into the military, but he washed out of, of military academy. 
And so the grandfather was not proud of him or whatever. <laughs> then you find out that he really did love him after all. And now he's going to be sad forever that he pushed him into the war and he died. It's melancholy at points. <laughs> sure. But, but the father coming back is definitely a high point to end on. What are your thoughts on it? This movie is fine. There are some, some things that I liked about it, some little scenes, but it's too long. It is too long. I grant you that. Thousand percent. It's almost three hours long. Again, deep research on my part. There's a, a poll review on the Wikipedia page for this film where the New York Times critic at the time, Bosley Crowther, cool name. What a name. <laughs> said, no doubt this would have been a sharper picture of Mr. Selznick had played it in much less time, and it would have been considerably more significant had he kept it somewhere closer to average means. Two hours and 51 minutes is a lot of time to harp upon one well-known theme, lonesomeness and anxiety. And that is all mm -hmm. this picture really does. And I was like, yeah, Bosley, that's where I'm at. I'm with you, bud. Yeah. Selznick is always too long. The man doesn't edit. I'll also say I hated the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was sure I was going to hate this movie after the first like 15 minutes. Because the first 15 minutes, nothing happens. It, she comes home from having dropped the husband off to go off to war. And then it's just her and the daughter's being sad and talking about how amazing the guy is who has gone off to war yeah. and there's no event. <laughs> so there's 15 minutes you could lose right there. <laughs> so I had a thought about that and I'm of, I'm of two minds about it. So for as long as this movie is, I think I would have felt more connected to the story if the first 30 minutes had been the father at home and him wrestling mm. with whether or not to go back to war and them talking through the financial issues it would cause because it did seem a little bit like the dad was just like, I got to go to war and be a man. Yeah. I got to do this and you fucking figure out the finances. Bye. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> he really left his wife in the lurch there. And also like they have a maid who's played by Hattie McDaniel, which is Hattie interesting. McDaniel back again. And I'm like, I don't know. If him leaving his job means that you have to take on a border and might lose the house, maybe you could never afford to have a maid. Maybe you should have been putting some money in savings. Well, that's <laughs> true. It definitely feels like they don't have a lot of savings and they're living, you know, paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> that's not really explored. It's not, it's not a huge problem. No. That was just my initial No, no, question. no. But I also understand maybe the instinct not to do that, right? Because I think in 1944, this is an experience that a lot of people are having. So maybe they wanted to keep it vague in general so that you yeah. could project your own husband onto the husband. And so that's my thought about it. Yeah. Definitely. It's understandable. I just think as a modern viewer, I would have been more keyed in to their emotions and the relationship if I had a sense of what the relationship was actually like, as opposed to them just being like, dad is the greatest. He's a perfect yeah. man. He's the best. Oh my God, dad. Yeah, I think I was willing to forgive it because I think the point of it at the time was this is for people who are going through this. Yes. So you know what it's like, which is even more why I was like, why do I need 15 minutes about how he's so great yeah. and they love him and it's sad that he's gone. It's like, obviously, it's sad that he's gone. We get it. But then I will say Joseph Cotton, who is in this movie and another we will be discussing, I have become a Joseph Cotton super he's fan. He's very over the course charming, of this episode. isn't he? I love him. 1944 me wants a poster of him on my wall. <laughs> okay. I love the man. So he's delightful in this. And I really liked his relationship with the wife. They have this thing going on where he is not quite like a confirmed bachelor, but he is a guy who is never really planning to settle down. And he is enamored with the relationship between this main couple who are his best friends. And mm -hmm. he's like, that's my vision of what a couple would be like. And if I were ever to settle down, that's what I would want. But I, 
I probably am never going to settle down and I'm just going to settle for being close friends with them and being the uncle to their kids. And so then he has this flirtation with the wife where the two of them flirt, but obviously they know nothing's ever going to come of it because he knows how in love she is with the best friend. And so I like how part of their family he was. And then there was this hilarious storyline where the daughter has now become a teenager. And so she sees Joseph Cotton again and decides that she is in love with him. (laughs) And then him having to like fend off this crush of the teenager was funny. And him pointing her towards someone else. I loved him finding the other boy and being like, this is a good boy for you to hang out. (laughs) Yes, it was uh, very appropriate of Joseph Cotton's character to be like, we're going to nip this in the bud. I will say also, I like Shirley Temple in this movie. She plays That's the younger daughter. She's like yeah. real spunky. She's so spunky. And I loved the relationship between her and the the crotchety old man border. Yeah. Because he comes in and he's been alone for a long time because his son is dead and he has this strained relationship with his grandson. And so he just doesn't want to be friends with anyone. And he's so picky and annoying. And Shirley Temple's character, she'll be friends with anybody, right? She can't be put off. She immediately is like, okay, cool. Yeah, you want this? You want that? That's fine. Come help me move my fish. And the guy's like, what is happening? (laughs) I was heartwarmed by his relationship with Shirley Temple. And then I did actually find that I liked the relationship between the daughter and the grandson. And I was sad when he went away and died. Did you read what was happening behind the scenes with those actors? Oh, God, no. What? So they were married, Robert Walker and Jennifer Jones. And she was having and he knew about this, an affair with Selznick at the time that destroyed their marriage. With Selznick? Yeah. (laughs) They got divorced shortly after. So Selznick is directing these two people falling in love who are married, and he knows that she's having this affair, and she later goes on to remarry him. And Robert Walker died very young. He died when he was 32. Shit, what happened to him? Uh, I can't remember. I just, I went on a bit of a a rabbit hole with Robert Walker because I was like, this guy looks so familiar to me. Why does this guy look so familiar to me? Yeah. And I was looking him up. I was like, oh, he's the guy in Strangers on a Train. But I was like, but that's not it. That's not what's triggering in my brain. Because he looks different in Strangers on a Train. It's like 10 years later. So he looks you know, yeah. older. His son is in an episode of Star Trek called Charlie X playing the lead guy, Charlie. His son looks exactly like him. And I had, I, it, it came to me. I was like, oh, he looks like Charlie and Charlie X. But I'm like, that's 20 years later. He clearly can't yeah. be that because he's way he's too dead. old. And also he's dead. Yeah. So yeah, his, his son is in an episode of Star Trek and his son looks exactly that's fascinating but also he's the guy in strangers on a train wait is the son with jennifer jones oh robert walker jr so that's obviously not about what's happening in the movie but it's like poor but that is a fascinating layer it also explains why there's good chemistry between the two of them but it's because things are weird (laughs) between them yeah i mean i it's definitely like fairly schmaltzy but Putting myself in the headspace of 1944 person, I was like, I think this is what I would have wanted if I my person is away at war and this is the story that I want to watch where everything's going to be okay. <laughs> He's going to come back, even though the kid's not going to come back. It yeah. is really sad that the kid dies. There are two boys who die in this movie, and I think they're both pretty telegraphed. Like, I'm, I was yeah. not surprised either of them died. I wasn't surprised the husband was alive at the end. So I don't know if mm-hmm. it hit me because I was like, of course he's alive. He went missing in action. That's what's going to happen. You're so cynical. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the greatest flaw is it's just, it's too. Too long. Too long. Everybody needs an editor. But anyway, yeah, not perfect, but I did like it. 
And I love Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton's charming. I would say some good performances, but I, I would, Claudette Colbert. I wouldn't recommend this movie. I mean, I would recommend it, but you have to know what you're getting going into it. It's pretty much what you expect it to be. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about Double Indemnity. Okay. Double okay. Indemnity is a noir, as we said. It pretty much is what we did, said in the short version. It's about an insurance salesman who goes out to check on a policy. He meets this woman. She convinces him to help her kill her husband because according to her, her husband is a terrible guy. They try to help her get money by taking out an accidental insurance policy on him, unbeknownst to him, with a double indemnity clause if he dies in an accident. Mm-hmm. And so they make it look like an accident. And then the film is about both him figuring out that she's been using him and the insurance company doing their investigation to try to determine whether or not it was really an accident and figuring out yeah. early on that it wasn't. So he's on and he's trying to outsmart Edward G. Robinson, who's the claims investigator. He's so great. And it's all wrapped up in a device where he has been shot at the beginning of the movie and we don't know why. And he has is recording a voice memo yeah. for the investigator telling him everything that has happened over the course of the film. Yes. So I enjoyed this movie, but I'm going to be honest, I really struggle with how to evaluate it because A, I'm not super well versed in the noir genre. And I've also Mm -hmm. seen, I think we all have at this point, parodies of noirs. And at some level, this feels like the parody. It's very like the dialogue is very noir-ish. And so I was like, I don't know how to think about this movie, but it's fun. It is fun. I mean, it's very plotty and twisty. And I think for the most part, the plot stuff works. I think their plan to get away with killing this guy is very interesting. And I liked the structure of it. Other than I'll say it's way too easy for her to convince this guy to murder her husband. Yeah, I think the character stuff isn't all there in terms of their relationship. I will say it's very interesting to watch Billy Wilder do noir because it's not normally his thing. But I I did wish it was funnier. Mm -hmm. I always want Billy Wilder stuff to be funny. Well, we Um, got the comedy in his performance at the Oscars. The comedy is in real life (laughs) following Billy Wilder around. There are some fun lines you're right that they were super noiry yeah the I mean, dialogue's very stylized it's co-written by raymond chandler it's as noiry as it gets but some of it is fun i did pull out some favorites did you do that as well yeah yeah okay. yeah actually one of them i wrote down was funny i wrote down because i liked that it was funny yeah uh, there's a widespread feeling that just because a man has a large office he must be an idiot was the <laughs> line that i liked but the noiry line that i wrote down that i really liked was i couldn't hear my own footsteps it was the walk of a dead man <laughs> Okay, I have four. One, at the beginning of the film, after he's been shot, he gets into an elevator to go up to his office, and he says to the elevator operator, let's ride. And I think that's a cool thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When he's starting out his voice memo to Edward G. Robinson, he says, you think you're such a hot potato as a claims manager. And I enjoyed that. Probably, this feels like a big line from this movie, but he's talking i think as he's leaving barbara stanwick's home about how she smelled of honeysuckle and he's like how could i have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle (laughs) that's so noir and also insurance companies no more tricks than a carload of monkeys Mm -hmm. so it's fun it's fun it is fun it's silly but it's fun i love the insurance adjuster guy edward g robinson is cool Yeah. So his name is Keyes in the movie, and he is sort of the best friend at the company of our main character. So then there's sort of a betrayal, too, as this goes on, because he's 
investigating his friend at the company and he'd been trying to recruit him to come work for him. So there's a lot of that element when it's happening. But there's this great scene. Keys is so smart. His whole Mm -hmm. thing is that no one can fool him when you know, insurance fraud has happened. He has like a nose for it. And so there's this great scene when the head of the company doesn't want to pay out the policy, of course, because they never do. And so he brings in Keys and our main guy and he's like, what if it was suicide? It's like his big, you know, (laughs) revelation he's had, like Keys wouldn't have considered it. And so Keys is like, of course, that's the first thing I thought. And then he gives this amazing speech about all the various types of suicide. He like, I got out my book about it and all of the ways it's happened and blah, blah, blah. And he starts listing like 85 (laughs) different types of suicide. And then it culminates in, and the one way it's never happened (laughs) is someone falling off a train. A slow moving train. (laughs) Yeah. I just loved that. That guy was fantastic. To the end of it being a noir, there's some really fun lighting, I think, particularly yep. at the beginning of the movie as he's coming into the office. Yeah. And I really liked the the relationship between Neff and, and Keys. And at the end, a couple of times throughout the movie, he tells Keys, I love you. And you're like, oh. Yeah. He's kind of, I mean, it's like they have, is he a surrogate father? Like what, you're <laughs> unclear what's going on with their relationship, but they're clearly very close. Mm-hmm. Which is lovely. Here's a question. Do you think yeah. that Neff is a reliable narrator? This is all from his perspective. I mean, no, of course not. Nobody who's like, I'm going to tell you my story now is ever really a reliable narrator, especially somebody who is. I mean, it is interesting because it's not just that he's the narrator for us, mm-hmm. but considering the audience who that he's telling the story to is also interesting because clearly this is the one guy in the world that he would not want to think bad things about him. So yeah. you know that he is he's sanitizing the story for him in some way. I love how he's fin- when he's finishing the story and then Keys is standing there and has been listening to him record. That's it's a good ending mm-hmm. to the movie. And he's try- he's been sitting here for 2 hours telling this story bleeding out of his shoulder and then when Keys shows up, he's like, "All right, Keys, just let me get a head start. Don't tell anybody I was here." And Keys is like, "You're not going anywhere." Going <laughs> he's like, "No, no, I'm going to Mexico." And he's like, "You're not going to make it out of the building." <laughs> right. Clearly He was right. He collapsed on his way to the elevator. But yeah, I mean, it's a solid noir. It's a cool story. The plot is fun. I was amazed that it wasn't based on a Raymond Chandler book. Mm -hmm. They brought in Raymond Chandler to adapt somebody else's book. Maybe they needed that that dialogue, that pitch perfect. Well, they did. I mean, it's not Billy Wilder's traditional style. They need someone who comes in and writes stuff like, you know, I couldn't hear my own footsteps. It was the walk of a dead man. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Exactly. But it was a fun time. Yeah, it's good. I liked it. I liked how it was shot. It's always interesting to see some a director who's known for one thing do something completely different. Yeah, and it's a clever enough plot that they're trying to get away with that you can be like, ooh, is this going to work? Is this, is this going to happen? I will say, there's this, after they kill the husband, the car weren't, won't turn on as they need to drive away. That was wonderfully tense. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> it was so good. I loved... But once they get into the actual, like, we're killing the husband now mm-hmm. part of the movie, they threw up lots of good little tense roadblocks, which is exactly yeah. what you need for this. Like, I love him going to the back of the train to do his plan. And then there's a guy sitting there and he's like, how am I going to deal with this? And like him figuring out how to get the guy cigars. to leave. And, yeah. All of that was really good. And the car not starting was great. It's real good. But the murder was clever, I thought. Yeah. And then my one of my last notes when it was all falling apart was... This is why you don't agree to kill someone for a woman you've known three days. 
She is using him. <laughs> She's really dating her stepdaughter's boyfriend. Well, but kind of. Not really. She's trying to convince him to turn on the daughter. It's not like they were in it together or something. Yeah. She was trying to use him. Well, I first thought they were going to be in it together, which I was ready for that twist. And then it turns out that now she's just collecting men to do her bidding, as femme fatales always do. So compelling. So beautiful. Yeah, so compelling. <laughs> so beautiful. I did that. The part that works the least well for me is all the beginning stuff where he sees her and then is immediately in love with her. And you're just like, yeah, you just got to like buy into it. It's a, an area where you have to suspend your disbelief for the genre, yep. I think. Anyway, good time. Double Indemnity. And now we know what that's all about because it's certainly a famous name of a movie. It is. All right. Gaslight? Should we talk about Gaslight? Yeah, let's Let's do it. it. You had seen Gaslight before, yes? I had, yeah. It was the only one of these films. I had not, though everyone knows what gaslighting is. So it's very exciting to see the origin of the thing. I really liked this movie. Okay. This was a good time. At the very beginning, this girl is leaving her house in the middle of the night under unknown circumstances, but everyone's telling, the guy's telling her, like, you just have to move on and forget all of that happened to you. And so you're like, ooh, what happened to her? And then we skip forward some time, like 10 years or something. She's living in Europe. She's training as a singer. She has a lovely voice. She has met a new man. She can't focus on her singing because she's so enamored with this man that she's met. And so she's trying to decide if she wants to focus on her career or go with this guy. And she tells the guy, like, I'm going to go away for a week on vacation to really think about this and decide what I want to do with my life. And then she goes on the vacation and he shows up there. Red flag number one. (laughs) (laughs) We might call it love bombing today, but uh, continue. (laughs) And so then the two of them are together now on this vacation and they officially decide they're going to get married. Everything's going to be great. She still owns this old house and he starts telling her when they've gotten married, wouldn't it be nice to have a house in New York? And like is describing basically the exact setup of, oh, sorry, in London. And is describing the exact setup of the house that she has left in London. And... She, who has not been able to go back to this house because I think we found out by now because her aunt was murdered in that house, decides she loves him so much. With his support, she'll be able to move past the trauma of it. And the two of them should move back into this house in London because it's his dream to live there anyway. And so they go back to the house in London. They're opening it up. No one's been in it for 10 years. It's full of all of her aunt's old stuff. Pretty quickly after they've moved into this place, you start to get more of a sense that this guy is trouble. He basically starts to convince her that she's forgetting things. She doesn't know what's going on. He's telling her that she has mood swings and she's losing things and she's starting to believe him. And Joseph Cotton, also in this one, appears and sees her and recognizes her because she looks so much like her aunt and reopens the cold case of the aunt's death and is investigating all of this and becomes suspicious of the guy that she is married. And then, you know, investigation, investigation, all of this happens. It comes out that the guy murdered the aunt, what was looking for her jewels and didn't find them at the time. And so he has orchestrated this entire thing to come back to the house so that he has time every night to go look for the jewels that he wanted to get. 10 years ago and Joseph Cotton figures it out and there's a showdown and they catch the guy and you know we could get into details later thoughts yeah I really like this movie I mean 
broadly, right? It's to my taste. I like psychological thrillers generally. I think you could also slot this movie into the gothic genre. I love a gothic story. That's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. genres. The systematic way that the male lead, Charles Boyer, goes through bringing his wife down into this idea that she's in madness is so well done, I think. It's incredibly good. I couldn't believe how well written it was like for when it came out and how exactly it speaks to today yeah right gaslighting is making someone feel like they're crazy to undermine their independence essentially or their ability Mm -hmm. to make decisions and it really comes from the fact that one of the things she thinks she sees that people keep telling her isn't happening is the film is set in victorian london so they have gas lights and when he goes out every night the gas keeps going down and she keeps being like who's turning on gas somewhere else in the house and everyone's like no one there's no one else in the house and she hears these footsteps over the head but obviously what's happening is he's turning on the gas in the attic as he's looking for these gems that the aunt had and yeah i mean that's the best part so this is the fourth time you've seen charles boyer and i was like we've done a lot of like it's been a lot of charles boyer but the only movie we've seen from before this is love affair and I was trying to figure out if he was generally playing against type, like if Love Affair was sort of the kind of role he was known for. And I think mm-hmm. he was. So he was usually cast as these very charming romantic leads. And so it's fun. Well, that's exactly who you want for this yeah, role. Yeah, it's really fun to put him in this role as this guy who's obviously outwardly quite charming, but inwardly using it, evil, using it for sinister purposes. He's so sinister. But yeah, I mean, that is, I will agree with you. That is absolutely the best part. His systematic dismantling of her mental health is like stunningly well written. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Every little thing that he does is so perfect. It like made me furious inside the whole time you're watching it. I I watched this, I think, before. Before I watched Since You Went Away. And so interestingly, the first time I saw Joseph Cotton on screen in this one, I already was like, I like this guy. Like there's this scene where she and Charles Boyer are walking through the park or whatever. And Joseph Cotton is there with, are they like his niece? I think they're like his niece and nephew. He's he's with children, but it's unexplained because it doesn't seem like he's married. No, I think it's his young relatives. And so he's taking some young relatives around. They're at the Tower of London and they pass each other and he thinks he recognizes her. So he sort of waves at her and she's like, oh, should I know who this guy is? Because he's waving at her. It's one of those awkward social yeah. situations. And so she like nods at him too. And and Charles Boyer, of course, uses this as a reason to get super jealous about her having, in, you know, interacted with this stranger. But even in that scene where he's just with these children and existing, I was like, this guy's great. <laughs> I'm gonna like this guy and then I was completely right because he's lovely Mm -hmm. he is so smart he really quickly is figuring out that it's the fault of this guy that all this stuff is happening and he also interestingly never buys into her being crazy which is an interesting thing for a male character in a movie about a woman that people think is crazy yeah (laughs) because he he comes to her and she's like oh i think i'm going crazy and he's like you're not crazy he's intentionally making you crazy (laughs) yeah and you're like wow this is fascinating joseph gotten but he was just a fun detective character charboyer though so good he's the worst guy he's so bad ingrid bergman's like really doing it in this movie though yeah she's having quite the mental breakdown i thought she was good so I think one criticism of this film that I have is I I feel like in maybe a more modern movie, they would have let her save herself at the end. Joseph Cotton really comes in and and is the one who's like, you're not crazy. I will help you. You just hang back. (laughs) I got this. 
But she does get a really good monologue at the end when she confronts her husband that I thought was excellent. And I thought she did an excellent job performing it. And, you know, she won the Oscar this year. And I think that monologue alone is like, yeah, give it to her. That's good. Well, the monologue is cool. Like, she might have won the Oscar anyway, because it's a lot of her slowly descending into madness and then finally getting to a place where she's like freaking out in the house. But that scene, I was so pleased that it was in there. Because you're right, obviously, if you made this now, she'd figure it out and she'd fix it herself. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting because they've already caught the guy. And then she's like, give me a minute alone with him. And everyone's like, okay. (laughs) And I was really concerned about what was going to happen because you're like, he could get out. He could do whatever. Like anything could happen. He's just tied to a chair. And so she locks the door behind herself to have this confrontational scene with him. And at first, they're playing it like, maybe she'll fall under his spell again. Like, right. you, there's an uncertainty well, to how it's saying, going. Well, he's saying, I love you. Please help me. Please let me go. We'll figure this out. Right. You know I love you. And then she gets to be like, wow, it's a real shame that I'm too crazy to help you. <laughs> if I wasn't crazy, I could probably be getting you out right now. And it's just delightful. It's really good. Yeah. He's like, can yeah. you go? There's a knife over there. Pick up that knife. He's tied up with rope. And she's like, "Yeah, oh, is that a knife? Do I have a knife in my hand? Oh, no, I've lost the knife. I what don't happened see a knife. to it? Yeah. If only oh, I wasn't really losing good. things all the time. It's such a good scene. It's really good. This is Angela Lansbury's first role in a film. That's what I was going to say, too. And she is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, everyone's used to Angela Lansbury from her later career. But she plays this character who she's this young maid and... Charles Boyer is sort of controlling her by this weird sort of flirty relationship. Yeah. And he's told her from the very beginning, like, don't interact with my wife too much. She's crazy, basically. So she has that bias coming into their interactions. And she just was this weird little flirty Angela Lansbury character, which I was not expecting for her first movie role. It was fascinating. Part of his plan or his approach to his wife is to get the servant to hate her so that she's afraid to interact with the servant. Mm -hmm. And he's constantly isolate her. He's constantly encouraging her to do things to piss off the servant. Yeah. It's so fucked up. But then the scene too where so there's a scene where the coals have gone down and she needs to put more coal in the fireplace. And Charles Boy is like, that's not for you to do. Call Nancy to come do it. And Ingrid Bergman's like, no, I can do it. And he's like, we have servants for a reason. Call Nancy to come do it. And then Nancy comes into the room and he makes Ingrid Bergman ask her to do this menial task that she could have done herself. And then Charles Boy starts flirting openly with Nancy in in front of his wife. So fucked. And it's that was a crazy so cruel. It was so cruel. I loved the writing of it. Yeah, he makes her call her in. And then, of course, is implying to the maid, like, well, she really wanted you to come in and do this. Yeah. Do this menial task. He's so awful. It's crazy. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. But the filmmaking's fun. Similar to Double Indemnity, good use of, like, shadows. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote down quotes because everything he tells her is just so viciously awful. You're inclined to lose things, Paula. And she's like, I am? (laughs) Are you becoming suspicious as well as absent-minded, Paula? He's just great. Angela Lansbury was doing a hilarious accent. Yeah, very Cockney. So that's another clever thing about Joseph Cotton is he learns that Angela Lansbury's character is like a good time gal. So he puts a a man on the beat who can flirt and hang out with Angela Lansbury. I loved that too. Yes, that was good. Joseph Cotton, at first you're like, why has he picked this guy? Because he walks up to a guy in the police station. He's like, are you married? And the guy's like, no. And he's like, I've got a new beat for you. (laughs) Cotton's very clever. 
Paula, please stop being hysterical. It's just all exactly the same shit that people say now to people. It's it's bad. Yeah. It's real bad. My only issue was I feel like his Chaboyer's character's motive is a little bit muddled because he was a singer, supposedly, and then becomes this murderer thief. Well, I think he was always a pianist, not a not a singer. Oh, sorry. That's what I meant. Musician is what I meant to say. So like at first he's a pianist and then wants to connect with this singer but then he murders her and then he wants her jewels so that he can't get her jewels. And then part of the issue, too, is the 10 year gap. What was he doing waiting around for all this time? Did he just happen upon the niece or was he waiting for her to be of age? Like, what's going on with that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think he was a he was a musician. That's also interesting. The the Tower of London scene, right? They go to they go to see the crown jewels and he clearly like he loves jewels. He's very excited. <laughs> the about man loves jewels, jewels, he's saying. And so, you know, he's greedy. I don't know. Like, you know, people love jewels. I don't get it. But fine. He wants to be wealthy. And then, yeah, yeah I was thinking about that, too. Like if the house is empty, can he just break into it to search right. for the gems? But I think maybe he felt like it's going to be suspicious if I'm just hanging around this house all the time. And also, I think he needs to turn on the light to see so it would be weird of this empty house like a light was always going on so he needs to figure out a way to get into the house and really be unobservable as he's going around and doing that and driving paula crazy is also a way to make sure like she doesn't have a conversation where someone's like that light in your attic's always going on late at night what's going on up there and she's like what i I certainly have no issue with why he decides to drive her crazy given where we have gotten in the story it's i think everything that happens before the story that i'm like "Eh, yeah i think he's been scheming to get those jewels all the time and then he alights upon 10 years is a long time to scheme when they're just sitting in an empty house (laughs) maybe he's been looking for them elsewhere during the time and then he's figured out that they're they must be in the house they never left her home it is interesting because it's one of those things where it's like they've been right in front of you the whole time because they're sewn into her most famous dress and there's a painting of her in the dress yeah. with the jewels on it. Yeah. It's a fun time. Yeah. I mean, there's some contrivances, right? Like it's absolutely perfect that he finally finds the gems the night that Joseph Cotton closes in. The night that come. Joseph Cotton closes <laughs> like, in. It's yeah. a movie. But movie things happen. You know, it's still fun. I liked it a lot. Big fan of Gaslight. Yep, it's good. Glad to see our boy Charles again. Wonder when else he'll show up. What's going on, boy, Charles? Yay! Absolutely. That's our five movies. How exciting. Is there anything else that needs to be talked about? We already said AFI has double indemnity on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, looking at the list of highest grossing, I mean, Meet Me in St. Louis is still remembered, but it's a happy, fun time musical, I guess. It probably could have been nominated like any happy fun time musical, but people aren't arguing for it. I didn't watch any other movies for this year. I will say the only other film I think from this year that I've seen is Lifeboat, which I remember liking, which is a Hitchcock film about a bunch of people who are stuck on a lifeboat together after a U-boat sinks a ship. And then I think they're also stuck on the boat with the U-boat captain, but they're not sure who it is. That's great setup. It's like a fun little enclosed space mystery. Love an enclosed space mystery. I don't have much else. But you know how the Academy disrespects Hitchcock at every turn. Yeah. So yeah, pretty easy conversation then. We don't have a bunch of other stuff. What do you think should have won? I mean, again, like I said, I I feel like I don't have a full grasp on how to evaluate double indemnity. But if it is peak noir, like that's like the high point of the genre. It's 20 on the AFI list. I'm fine with that. I think my favorite of these films is probably Gaslight, but I don't really have a problem. If it was double indemnity. Sure. If we're picking just for personal taste, I think Gaslight is my choice. But I will say, either way for both of us, did the Oscars get it wrong? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Going my way, 
did not enjoy it. But should we get to the most important question in any episode of our podcast? Let's take a trip to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Should he have been nominated for an Oscar this year? Well, I think that you could probably guess he wasn't alive. No. Unsurprisingly, in 1944. He's not an 80-year-old man. You may have noticed. He's not an 80-year-old man. That would be quite the twist. Let's do our Which also means he would have been a baby in one of these movies. Probably wouldn't have been nominated. He probably wouldn't have been nominated even then. Some dream casting then. Some hypothetical what could Jake have been in casting. Has anything jumped to your mind? Mm. I mean, obviously, it's always interesting because since it's hypothetical casting, you could be casting any age of Gyllenhaal up until now. I don't know what to do with this, really. I mean, it would have been a slightly different vibe, but he could do the Charles Boyer role of of being charming and then... I could actually see that, him being charming and then terrifying in his manipulativeness. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. I mean, I guess you could put him in the double indemnity lead, but there's really not much to that role. Now, character doesn't seem to be the strength of noir. Uh -uh. I wouldn't put him in going my way because I didn't like it. No. And then... Could have been in since you went away. I mean, he could have been Joseph Jake. He could have been Joseph Cotton, but as... I guess he could have been the young soldier. That's true. Young Jake as the young soldier. That makes sense to me. I wouldn't want to replace Joseph Cotton now because I love him. Sure. <laughs> I wouldn't have put him in Wilson. No. No. So I think the Gaslight I mean, character... I mean, putting Jake in Wilson would have been really bad casting. I'm assuming we're talking about Wilson. Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't look anything like Woodrow doesn't Wilson. Doesn't look anything like Wilson. It's true. It's just true. And he's not old enough to play that role now. So it's a future Jake that we are casting. He still is not I guess going you to could, look like Woodrow Wilson. You could age him up. You could put him in Woodrow Wilson aged up mu- makeup. Oh, put him in prosthetics just, to make him look like yeah, Woodrow exactly, Wilson? Yeah, exactly. To make him look like Woodrow Wilson. I guess that's possible. It's not worth it. We're not putting him in Gaslight. Yeah. <laughs> We're making him Charles Boyer. Although I really like Charles Boyer and I think it's interesting casting. Yeah, he's great. And what makes that so good is if you're known for playing romantic leads to come in and play this ostensibly romantic yeah. lead who is, you know, a monster. Gaslighting. <laughs> Gaslighting. Really good. All right. So maybe this isn't a year that is calling out for Hall's presence. Let us get to a, some sort of conclusion. Do you see Yay. yourself coming back to any of these films? I mean, this is the second time I watched Gaslight. I enjoyed it just as much. I could watch it again. Mm-hmm. I'd I'd be into that. I think, you know, as much as you know the mystery of it, it really is a lot in the performance. The performances are so good and the writing is spectacular. Yeah. That's the one I would rewatch. I think in in our classic, if someone hadn't seen it, would I watch Double Indemnity again with someone? Sure. sure. It's not that long. No. But Gaslight, I could see myself coming back to because it's just a good time. Yeah. What have we learned about what makes the best picture? This is an interesting year. They did not go with scope. Nope. Unconventional. Maybe because it was wartime. They were like, everyone just needs a quiet little movie about a quiet little priest having a quiet little time. Well, it is interesting because they did make some movies this year that were in the war about the war. And it is interesting that none of that is on the radar of the Academy. The war is on the periphery. If it's anywhere, there are movies speaking to the war, but you're not having to see soldiers at war, which is kind of a lot to deal with if you actually know a bunch of soldiers at war. So yeah, away from scope towards, I guess, just pleasant, light, fair. Yeah, that's what they picked. It's pretty forgettable, I think. I agree. But you know, heavy times, 
Also, I guess, right, the studio really threw their weight behind it. So. Yeah, the studio for some reason was like, this is the one. This Here's is the one that's going to win. I mean, probably just because of Bing Crosby. Yes. Sometimes it is that simple. It's like, this is our biggest star and he's in this movie and this is the one that's going to win. And so you're like, okay. Let us visit our patterns, though. Do we have any angry white guys? I mean, Charles Boyer has no chill. <laughs> he really, truly has no chill. But I don't read him as being this way because of his toxic Misogyny. masculinity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is interesting, actually, because a lot of people who act this way do do it because of their misogyny. And he, he for some reason, just has to do it because he, he wants He just really wants some jewels. jewels. <laughs> Which is an interesting motivation. That is sort of an interesting part about it. It's such an accurate description of a manipulative, abusive partner. Yeah. Who are out there. There are tons of them, but they're mostly just doing it because, yeah, they're they're bad or they hate their spouse or they're misogynist or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in this one, they were like, here's this perfect portrayal of him. But he's not really doing it because he wants to. He's just doing it as <laughs> a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would say this is not really any of our traditional angry white guys. No. It might be too early for that idea. I think, I think we're pre. We've talked about this before. We're sort of pre that. Mm-hmm. Biopics. Yeah. We got one. Wilson. <laughs> yep. And then original ideas. We have one original idea this year. Yeah, guys, we did something crazy in our outlining this time and actually looked it up beforehand, so we're not <laughs> sitting here and going, like, what is that? Never say we don't learn and grow and change. Yeah, just one original idea, which is going my way. The worst one. So we've said it before, we'll say it again. Original idea does not mean necessarily good. It's true. Gaslight um, is based on a play, and it's awesome. It's awesome. Is that enough? Have we said everything? I think I... I think so. I don't have any stray thoughts about any of these films. I am in the market for a Joseph Cotton poster, though, if anyone knows of a good one. Oh, yeah. That would be a fun thing to have up in your place. <laughs> it would be fun. I could get I could get on board with that. I'll find a wall for it. What are we talking about next time? We're skipping ahead several decades to talk about the 67th Academy Awards or the films of 1994. This is a big year, people. Exciting times. The nominees were Forrest Gump. Four Weddings and a Funeral, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, and The Shawshank Redemption. This is a year of controversy. This is a Legendary. year of People have a lot of thoughts about this year, and I guess we will too. This is a year of bangers. This is a year of movies that are all still culturally <laughs> relevant. Which of these have you seen before? I have seen four of them. You want to know the ones? <laughs> I know I know the ones. You haven't yeah. seen Quiz Show. <laughs> I've not seen Quiz Show. Yeah. And I know that it's supposed to be great. And everyone's told me to watch it, including Kelsey. I understand. But I haven't seen it. And well, I will know. have seen it. Again, part of the purpose of this podcast is to get us to watch all these movies. I've seen three of these movies. I have not seen Four Weddings and a Funeral or Shawshank, which is obviously a big gap. I think Shawshank more than the other one. But So exciting. Yeah. I'm really pumped to do this year. This should be great. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, concerns, you can reach us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and we have a new website, OscarsWrongPod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>